and welcome back to another episode of the TV That Changed Me podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about WandaVision. How is everyone doing out there? Everyone doing all right? For me, I'm starting to feel just a little bit better after a year of lockdown, now that we can finally get outside and see some friends and family again. And looking at the stats of the show, I can see we have listeners from all around the world. And I really, I really just hope that everyone's doing okay. Especially when the last year has been filled with so many different kinds of loss. There's the smaller everyday losses, the more manageable ones, I guess you could say. The loss of face-to-face interaction with friends, interaction with colleagues. Then there's a much bigger kind of loss. For hundreds of thousands of people in the UK and millions of people across the world. There's been the loss of friends and family and other people who have died. And the ways that we've dealt with loss as a society have been really, really different. At the start of the pandemic, a lot of people dealt with the loss of their social lives by baking banana bread obsessively, um, by running 5Ks for charity and um, finally learning how to play chess. But I think for most of us, the way we've dealt with the pandemic, and this is definitely true for me, is by immersing ourselves in a different world. The world of film and TV and Tiger King and Ozark and God, I've watched a lot of telly in the pandemic. And that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about today. The show WandaVision is all about how a superhero deals with grief and loss through the medium of television. And I'm so excited to be talking about it today with this week's guest. So let's go. Hi, I'm Itsam. I'm Itsam Ahmed. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. I am uh, currently completing my PhD in politics at the University of Nottingham. And I've also just started my role as the policy and research manager at LGBT Foundation. Um, I'm a lifelong superhero fan. Um, I started watching TV shows, particularly the 90s animated series for the X-Men and Batman and Spider-Man growing up in Bangladesh, which is where I'm originally from. And I've kind of stuck through um, with superheroes in particular through that, but I've, I've always loved popular culture. It's been a really fantastic way to find out about different parts of the world. Um, It's been a really interesting way to, to connect with different communities. And as a, as a minority myself, and especially as a, as a queer minority, um, it's also let me find a lot of fandoms and community spaces. So I'm really excited to um, be talking on this podcast because um, TV does does matter, um, contrary to what people might like to believe. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I think there's sometimes a bit of an idea that if you like TV... I don't know. I feel like film buffs are really seen to be sort of like art critics, Mm -hmm. whereas people who are really people who are really into TV, it's not quite seen to be so highbrow. So I really appreciate that you said that, actually. Yeah, it's it's that strange thing of it's almost this this idea of of high art versus just something pulpy and poppy. But um, first of all, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that anyway. But I mean, TV is so fascinating. and I actually think it allows for extremely rich storytelling, which sometimes films don't allow because they don't have as much time to develop stories. So I think TV, when it's done right, um, 
is is a fantastic medium. Definitely. And I think TV now as well is more cinematic Mm -hmm. in the way it's produced because of um, Netflix and all of those kind of streaming services with such enormous budgets. So I think progressively TV is being taken and you and you see as well. Actually, this is a huge diversion. We haven't even talked about which show you're going to no. talk about. We'll, we'll do that in a second. But um, I, yeah, I think also the kinds of big Hollywood actors who you'd normally expect to see uh, predominantly in film are also moving into the TV space. So I think you're seeing TV maybe making that transition from kind of like poppy and sort of uh, lowbrow to highbrow. Even though I think that's a bit of a false dichotomy, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, today we're going to be talking about WandaVision. Would you, for those who aren't aware, be able to give a little premise of what that show is about? Um, sure. And also, I realised we did that tangent, but it actually speaks quite nicely to some of the stuff about WandaVision. Um, so WandaVision is um, a show that is streaming on Disney Plus, the app. It is part of the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it, it fits in with all of the major tentpole films. And chronologically, it's set immediately after Avengers Endgame. And it follows Wanda, who we've met through the films, as uh, someone who has a really broad range of powers. Um, she we start off discovering her as someone who can just kind of levitate objects with her mind and a kind of basic um, telekinesis. But then we also discover she has ways to manipulate people's dreams, manipulate people's memories. So we get this idea over the course of the films that she's a lot more than she seems. And that's something that the show really delves into. And we also see um, Vision, who is her love, interest in in the films he's an android i think is probably the most accurate way of describing him um who has a full emotional range and personality and what's interesting is that over the course of the films he has died um so when we get into one division which follows as the name implies wanda and vision we see that he's alive again so we're, we're already kind of thrown in with a bit of a oh that's that's something that we don't know about so um we kind of discover what's going on and um sort of in in in, in the grand superhero fashion we see who's pulling the strings as well it's really interestingly filmed because each episode is done in the style of a classic sitcom um and it kind of goes through for any fans of television as a medium, it goes through the different eras of TV. So it starts off with a very 1950s um, Dick Van Dyke show, I Love Lucy vibe, and then goes into the 60s and then 70s, 80s, 90s, etc. And it, it picks up on filming techniques. It picks up on the types of humor that these different shows have. Um, some of the episodes have laugh tracks, some of them don't. Um, so it's... Um, as a TV show, it's actually, it, it's a love letter to the medium. And over the course of the series, we find out why they've done that. And as a, as a superhero fan, and obviously as anyone who's a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's a fantastic way to let two characters really breathe and become their own. Because with films, as I kind of briefly mentioned in the tangent we had, it's sometimes a bit harder to give characters room to breathe and develop. 
especially for superheroes and especially for kind of big blockbuster films. And it was really nice to kind of have a very different approach where it was quite intimate, quite personal, and just having those eight episodes of letting the characters discover themselves as much as letting us discover who they are. So that was quite fun. Yeah, and that's what struck me. Okay, so I need to preface this whole episode with the fact that I don't know much about the Marvel Universe. (laughs) And, And so I think for me, when I watched it, I instantly, I was like, okay, I know this is about superheroes, but I don't feel the barrier to entry that I often feel, Mm -hmm. which is the long fight scenes, the kind of like instant into action. There's like a huge, you know, an explosion and we're launching into action straight away. I'm like, okay, there's none of that. Instead, I'm seeing this character arc. I'm getting to know these people. And I, I was instantly much more warm to the two characters. And by the time we got to the more sort of action-y side by the end of the series, I was ready for it. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if TV lends itself to that much better. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's that interesting comparison of, um, particularly with something like WandaVision, because you can make that direct comparison with, with in fact, these exact same characters and these exact same actors, because it is, it is the same universe as it was. You can make that direct comparison between what they're like in their TV shows versus what they're like in films. And um, I think, you know, I think it's just a case of figuring out which medium works best. So this, I'm also a huge fan of the films. This isn't to say that the films are in any way, objectively speaking, better or worse. But I think what the... Um, what the showrunners did really well is that they took full advantage of the fact that this is a different format. So instead of just trying to make uh, an eight-hour-long film, they were very clever in actually going, well, actually, you know, this is a TV show. And and um, unlike a lot of streaming shows, this was released week by week as well. Um, so I think they were very clever in in actually building in the strengths of the for- um, of the medium and the format. Um, so kind of doing the kind of typical, oh, there's a cliffhanger at the end of the episode. What are we going to, how are we going to find out? Is it, it, it pulls you back in. Uh, and that was well done. And what do you think the reasoning for releasing it week by week was? I mean, I think, um, I think part of it was um, staying true to the, the format. Um, they were very clear that they wanted to, to kind of pay their respects to the very traditional sitcom format. And obviously sitcoms weren't necessarily week by week, but you know, they they weren't all released in one go. Um, So there was that aspect, I think, of just kind of that being inbuilt into the story. Yeah. And I think there's a bit of, it sounds silly to say nostalgia because it wasn't very long ago, but I think that people definitely miss the week by week installments. I think it brings a little bit of magic and excitement to it that, the big episode dump doesn't. Um, so especially when you kind of see the way like tri- Twitter trends around like episode releases, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's is it also in terms of like marketing, it's a good strategy. It's fantastic. And it, it lets the story simmer a bit as well. I mean, obviously there's, there's, there's the marketing side of it and, and the nostalgia of, of what it used to be like. I mean, I mentioned in, I mentioned in my introduction that my, my, um, my, first experience of superheroes was the 19 animated shows. Um, and growing up in Bangladesh, that meant waking up every Saturday at a ridiculous hour. Um, ridiculous for me, I'm not a morning person. 
um, and and watching the show. But that was a week by week thing. So there, you know, it's it's um, it is part of that. It is part of that almost grand tradition of superhero TV shows because those are very iconic shows. Um, but it also um, with the online community and the discussions and the fandom, there are some fantastic theories that people had and they could discuss and they could kind of go, ooh, I saw this little Easter egg. I wonder if that means something. Um, the number of theories I saw about the rabbit that was in episode two was quite hilarious. Um, they're, they're, for, for, for anyone who hasn't seen it, there is a rabbit. Um, and because of the kind of weird reality manipulation that we see throughout the episodes, there's th th there were quite a few theories that the rabbit's really the big bad and is is manipulating everything. It was brilliant, um, <laughs> and you wouldn't have that with an info dump because obviously the minute someone comes up with a theory, someone else would go, "Well, actually, I just finished the entire series, and that's not what happens." Um, but you you can let that excitement build up, um, and um, some fascinating fan stories and fascinating fan theories if if you're if he, anyone's watching one division now when obviously all the episodes are currently all available um i would still encourage you to go through the the rabbit hole of old twitter fan threads between each episode it's fascinating seeing what people have come up with definitely and i think also because it was a show with a lot of mystery in it like even being someone who didn't know much about the Marvel Universe, I was like, okay, so these two, these are these are big players. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, okay, these two are big players um, from the Avengers, and they are stuck in this reality. But what is this reality, and why are we in black and white, and what's going on here? Like, there's there's a lot to unpack, even if you the kind of more granular uh, Easter eggs about the kind of Marvel Universe in general mm -hmm. pass you by. Like I'm sure many of them did for me. It's it's got the mystery and it's got the element of what's going to happen next. And so obviously this podcast is the TV that changed me and you specifically chose WandaVision because of the, the kind of themes that spoke to you. Do you want to talk about why you decided to choose to talk about it? Sure. Um, so there were, there were two big things in WandaVision for me um that really connected uh and and they're two they're, they're two completely separate things but i think they're both equally quite powerful um and the first was one division as an exploration of grief now as i mentioned um we when we see wanda and vision for the last time before this show vision has died um in fact very last scene we see of Wanda is at a funeral, not not Vision's funeral. Um, she was at another hero's funeral, and um, she she does actually reflect on what it would mean to move on from her love that she she shared with Vision. Um, so we do leave her in a very emotionally vulnerable place, and over the course of the show, we do discover. Um, what exactly is going on um, in terms of this being kind of a, it's not quite an alternate reality, but there is certainly a layer of superpower manipulation and um, superpower kind of hocus pocus going on. Um, so, and, and um, what's so powerful about that is instead of it being the more traditional superhero thing of, 
bad guy does something because bad guy wants power and then good guy steps in to stop them. And even with the most nuanced um, and, and, you know, politically aware superhero films, you can still boil it down to that kind of basic story. Um, what we saw with WandaVision was this kind of reality being an almost unplanned explosion of grief. Um, and it happens because um, Wanda is unable to really process what's going on uh, with her. Um, and it was something that I hadn't actually even picked up on as I was watching the show, but it, it kind of, it dawned on me just as I finished was um, the episodes are almost structured around the stages of grief as well. So we see kind of the denial. Um, we see the anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. And it's really important to show those kinds of emotions because superheroes, when they're done well, when they're done right, in my opinion, they're, they're modern fairy tales. They let us put our experiences onto this really fantastic canvas and explore that. Um, and we sometimes lose sight of that with the, with the bigger temple films. But at their core, superhero stories for me are just about, you know, how would you deal with kind of the upheavals of a superhero life and for a superhero to deal with grief? I mean, what would someone who is extremely powerful can, can block bullets? How do they block a broken heart? How do they then deal with a broken heart? And what really made me appreciate the show at the end of it was there wasn't a neat resolution. Um, there was, they, they tied in kind of the big narrative plot points, um, and, and the story beats and the, 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 the bad guys when they did show up and kind of resolving all of that. But it wasn't a neat, everything's fine, here's a bow on top. Um, it was very messy. It was very chaotic. Um, but, and also very importantly, um, there was a point that was made by the end of the series where um, Wanda's grief doesn't excuse some of the more morally ambiguous things that she did in her grief. So they acknowledge that a lot of the slightly dodgy things she does and you'll know what I mean when you watch the show. Um, they acknowledge that she did them in a state of extreme vulnerability and sadness, but that doesn't lessen the impact of what she did. And I think those are some very important lessons to be taken away. Yeah, it was just, it was a really interesting perspective because I was thinking there is a bit of a myth around grief, like you say, that you go through the set stages, you go through the denial, the bargaining, and then there's an acceptance and it's all wrapped up neatly. But whereas people who have been bereaved and people who've dealt with grief in their life will tell you that that's really not true and that actually the sort of pain you feel can remain as intense the day that it happens mm -hmm. as 50 years later. 
And so I think that really interesting thing you said about the messiness of the ending and that it didn't feel like, oh, and now she's moved on. That's that's actually a really realistic portrayal of grief that you don't always get in television. No, absolutely. And um, and I did particularly um, like that. They acknowledged that it was a journey. So I think it was important to show that she did go through the processing of it. It wasn't that she's exactly where she started because I think that would be the wrong message to send as well. Um, so I appreciated that they kind of, they had a very nuanced take on it basically. And um, weirdly enough, I think for what, what, is, what was effectively a lockdown show um, in terms of when it came out in the middle of the pandemic, um, I know that it helped a lot of fans and, and this is through conversations on, on Twitch forums and the fan community. Um, it did actually help a lot of fans through bereavement that many of us are going through now because of the pandemic, kind of upheaval where life as we know it has completely changed. And I mean, I know One Division was written and, and indeed filmed before the pandemic really, really um, accelerated. So it's not even a case of them kind of going, ooh, we should say something meaningful about our times and kind of shoehorn that in. Um, so it's almost, it's weirdly, uh, it's a very strange coincidence that it was able to kind of provide that reflective nature um, because it's it effectively, I mean, it's the same thing in, in many ways. You're, you're stuck in an alternate reality where um, you're dealing with grief. Um, and it, for a lot of folks who have been stuck in bubbles, that it's a, it's an uncomfortably relatable situation. Yeah, exactly. And even though her reality changes through the different um, iterations of the kind of TV show from episode to episode, she's very much stuck in a bubble of suburban she's actually stuck in a bubble really isn't she um of suburban life and she is doing the same stuff sort of thing every day and you can completely see why people related to that so heavily um during lockdown and then the the bereavement and the loss on top of that is just com it's it's actually really surprising that they wrote it before the pandemic yeah but also i liked that with it being a tv format they really were able to delve into the impact of her actions. Because I think with superhero films, what sometimes happens is um, the kind of grand actions of these overpowered humans um, sometimes get lost. And I do say sometimes because I think there are increasingly more and more films, um, and particularly Marvel films, that are taking the time to kind of address the impact that they have on other people. But you still aren't able to really delve into that. And I think um, the joy of seeing this on TV was kind of um, seeing that aspect as well. Um, and raising a real question of, of meaningful accountability, because um, you know, th there, have been, there have been attempts in, in film of kind of trying to rein superheroes in, and we've seen kind of good examples of that in Marvel with, um, Captain America Civil War. We've seen slightly messier examples in DC with Batman versus Superman, but all of those usually seem a very kind of surface exploration of what accountability really means. And I, I can't blame them. It's, you know, they're, they're trying to cram a lot of that in into two hours. 
but this one felt more for a show that was very very reliant on um completely changing reality that felt very real and very grounded and i appreciated that a lot as well yeah i was gonna ask actually a little bit about the evolution of the way that superhero stories are told and the kinds of superhero stories that are told um i think even for me maybe this is my ignorance but i feel like the centering of a woman superhero story is rarer i don't know certainly it would certainly in, in in live action adaptations and i think this is something that um marvel is admittedly getting better at and you know that's to be encouraged but it's strange because um after I got into superheroes through the animated series in the 90s, I then fell in love with the comic books. And the 90s animated shows, um, particularly the team-based shows, were very, very evenly split along um, kind of the, along gender representation. So the animated shows didn't have a lack of women um, by any means. And of course, the comics are uh, the, the old. The, the further back you go, yes, the vast majority of classic superheroes have been men, but there have been a lot of women um, throughout kind of the history of superheroes. Um, and with films, it kind of feels like they started with the same initial. Uh, rosters that they had at the very beginning. So they again started with very male heavy teams. It almost feels like they missed a trick by just going, well, since, since we get to have a, a clean start, why are we just recreating that same, um, evolution of representation? Why don't we just start with, with, um, with greater representation to begin with? So there is, you know, there's something to say about that. Um, Scarlet, which is a fascinating example of it, because again, in the comic books, she's been, around and in various situations, various teams, she has a much more complicated backstory um, in, in the book, something that's being um, vamped and revamped and retconned every so often as well. I've actually lost track of what her backstory is supposed to actually be right now in the comics. But she's quite a central character to the Marvel universe. And this is probably the first time we're really seeing her develop fully. She's been in films before, um, and they showed a lot of evolution of her skills as a superhero, which is great as well. But this is probably the first time we got to really delve into her as an individual. So that was really interesting. And I would say well overdue. And so when you say about the different versions of her backstory, so is the kind of WandaVision Scarlet Witch link always there? That link is is there. Um, I guess one of the reasons why it's also done differently is, and this is, you know, this is where the the, the illusion of the TV world breaks down and you have to kind of look at the, the corporate wranglings. Um, because Scarlet Witch has appeared in multiple teams and she's appeared with the Avengers, but she's also appeared with the X-Men, who until very, very recently, the film rights were owned by a different studio. Um, they weren't able to tell her full story when she debuted um, on screen. 
because uh, Marvel at the Marvel film studio only had rights to tell part of her story. So there is, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's going into the, the kind of behind the scenes stuff. But there was, there was a very um, practical and legal reason to, as to why they perhaps couldn't tell a background. So I, I will, I will acknowledge that as well. And perhaps that may have been one but of the reasons. But that's always interesting to know as well. Like the, the kind of puppet strings of uh, mm-hmm. TV companies mm-hmm. and producers affects storytelling in so many ways. Um, and so that's always good to have that bit of background too. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, much, much like the grief that they explore, it's an extremely messy world. Um, the ownership of rights, particularly when it comes to the ownership of rights of characters who who debuted in a different medium um, and then kind of are now being transferred over. Um, so some of this is being resolved now because the, the X-Men rights have all been reversed now. So what, what we might potentially be seeing moving forward is um, the ability to really tell the rest of that story as well. And that, that may partially actually be the reason why they were able to really go in depth with one division because the kind of legal messiness of that has been smoothed over. I was going to kind of because I mentioned that I had two reasons for picking one division. So I was going yes, to go into yes, very good keeping on track. Well done. I was but yes, definitely. The the other reason that I absolutely adored one division is um, and this is a bit of again background knowledge. Um, Wanda's children, the twins, Billy and Tommy whom we see in the show, um, in the comic books, they are both queer. Um, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I read your recent thing about it and I was <laughs> wanted to, I was desperate to find out more. So um, <laughs> go, they go are, ahead. They are wonderfully queer and they are also written, um, they're written as kind of the experience of queer teenagers in in 2000s, in the, in the 2000s in, in the US. So they don't go through the kind of tormented coming out that um, you would have seen with, with older superheroes, um, which isn't to say they don't struggle with it, but it's, it's a very modern take on it. And um, they are both fantastic characters. One of them, um, so uh, Billy, is has always been in a wonderful um same gender relationship in the comics um they they are a power couple in fact very recently in the comic books they uh, him and his now husband got a huge storyline which really centered the power of of gay love in saving the universe which was lovely um tommy was um kind of read as asexual like he was sort of flirty but also not really that interested and he's recently when i say recently i mean the past 12 months come out as uh pansexual and he now has a boyfriend um and again the experience is something which is very much like it's not the case of oh before he had the label he was read as straight that was very much not the case there was kind of that implication that he was he was asexual, um, but he wasn't also bothered by the label. It wasn't that I need this label to find myself. It was again that kind of 
very new experience. It was just like, I am who I am and that's fine. And people were, his, you know, people within the universe of, of comic books were great with that. Now, I mentioned this as background information because the twins in the TV show are extremely young. They are, by the end of the series, they are 10. Um, they, they've just recently turned 10 by the end of the series. Um, so they don't grapple with sexuality. Um, but it would be very shocking if moving forward um, and when the twins do inevitably grow up in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it would be shocking if they weren't portrayed as LGBTQ, particularly Billy because of how central his love life is to the Marvel Universe in the comics. So I, I am saying this with an, with a, taking a massive, you know, assumption, but with that assumption in mind that Marvel really won't be changing that, um, what made me excited was seeing two kids who I know are queer, or at least who will grow up to be queer, having a really lovely childhood. Mm. And oh, that's such an interesting point. And I, that's so interesting. And I say that as someone who I've gone through a very difficult experience of of queerness coming from Bangladesh. But if I really stop and think about my childhood memories before I was grappling with my sexuality, it was a very similar experience. And sometimes when we look at creating queer characters, particularly if we're centering their queerness in a meaningful way, we sometimes forget that our experiences are a lot more nuanced than that. And different ages have different ways of of engaging with that. I mean, when I was eight and, and, and 10, I wasn't thinking about, I mean, I wasn't struggling with my sexuality. I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to be a paleontologist or an astronaut. And it's really refreshing seeing that same thing because, again, assuming that Disney will keep them queer, uh, Disney and Marvel will keep them queer, it's nice to see queer kids just be allowed to be kids. Honestly, that's blown my mind because I, I kind of hadn't put two and two together that the characters you wrote about in your article were the kids in WandaVision, even though, yeah, I hadn't realised that fully and that's so true because even in when you're looking at sort of a queer childhood story any kind of coming of age story it so often focuses on the teenage years and the sort of struggle and there's always a bit of tragedy there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and even if they do hark back to years younger than 10 it's normally this sort of stereotypical thing of maybe the boys maybe it's a young a boy and they've stolen their mum's makeup or you know something like that it's it's normally like with a struggle with the parents mm -hmm. and so it is a completely refreshing thing to see queer children growing up almost in um in peace <laughs> yeah and and certainly and uh, i mean again the, there's there's conflict as there would be in a superhero show but nothing with regards to who they are in in terms of their again potential sexuality and romantic lives. Um, but also just, it's rare to see queer characters 
not dealing with trauma as well. Um, because we tend to either see, we either tend to see queer characters who are completely shaped through this experience of being queer and the, the challenges of that more often than not the traumatic challenges of that increasingly we're seeing kind of the celebration of that identity, but very centered on that. And that's the only thing they're allowed to be. Or on the flip side, we see characters whose queerness just doesn't get addressed whatsoever. And again, I don't want to give Marvel too much credit because obviously being eight and 10, there was no indication of who they might grow up to be. So I, I am, I am kind of superimposing my future hopes onto this show. <laughs> But because of the way I think Marvel tends to look at character development and character evolution, bearing in mind, you know, the, the world of WandaVision as a TV show has only been around for those eight episodes, but the seeds of the Marvel Cinematic Universe were planted way back in 2008 with Iron Man, the first film. So they do think very long term. And if we work on the assumption that some of the other Young Avengers characters have been hinted at. So the Young Avengers are the superhero team that Billy and Tommy grow up to become a part of. Um, we've seen a few other characters referenced, some explicitly, some kind of hinted at. Um, so the direction that Marvel seems to be going is that they will be setting up this superhero team. Amazing. And if they do that, I love that this would have been their first introduction because how nice it, it, is it that you get to see them just be kids. But also, how does that fit in with the fact that Westview, the name of the town, mm -hmm. am I right? I think so, um, isn't, is actually not a real place. Is that their real childhood? How does that work? So... Going into spoilery territory uh, for anyone who still hasn't seen the show, <laughs> should, I, I realize we probably should have started with a spoiler warning. Um, the that's okay. As long as we can say there will be spoilers now, then we can talk about it, and people can skip past. So yeah, th there definitely will be very explicit spoilers. Um, <laughs> so by the end of the uh, by the end of the series, we do kind of see. Wanda letting go of the ideal reality that she's built for herself, including her kids, um, including that heartbreaking line where she looks at them just before the reality is about to kind of collapse. And she goes, thank you for choosing me to be your mother. That broke me. Um, but of course, at the very, very, very end of the show, once this reality has collapsed and, and Billy and Tommy have kind of disappeared because they were her, they were her ideal kids. And they've kind of gone away now. Um, the ending of the show where she is learning more about her powers, where she's training, we hear the kids calling out to her. And that was done very ambiguously because um, they had been calling out to her in a similar way that, you know, they're yelling help, help earlier on when they were all kind of fighting the baddie. So, it, they've left it ambiguous in terms of, ooh, is this just an echo of what her experiences in, in Westview were? Is this just another another kind of moment of grief? Or is it something more interesting? 
because, um, again, in the comics, the way the characters were introduced is quite similar in that, in, in that Wanda, in her grief, builds herself family out of thin air. But what they explain in, in the comic books is that, um, after Wanda's reality breaks down, Vision kind of goes back to the state he was in prior to being revived. But the kids hadn't existed before this reality. Mm. And the the comic book explanation of that is they kind of wander so powerful that she kind of actually manifested two kids. So when this reality disintegrated, everything went back to the way it was. But because these two actual, like fully sentient human beings were created, they're kind of spirits are still lurking around and later on over the course of the comics they they do get born as proper children but with the memories and experiences of what they had in that reality so again if it goes along the lines of the comic books and the kind of planting of that seed in that very final scene where the kids are calling out her and she kind of looks up offers the possibility that perhaps they will be brought back in a more permanent way and that their experiences in Westview, even though it was a fake reality, will be their memories. So it's very much possible that this was their childhood and that they will continue along the arc of the comics, Mm -hmm. hopefully. Fingers Um, crossed. And and we do know um, from, from Marvel, we do know that um, Wanda's next appearance is going to be in the next film called um, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which if we go with the title of the film, will be building into this theory of alternate realities and how different alternate realities kind of combine. And it, again, within the comics, there's a lot of really complicated mechanics involved. But with that being her next film outing. In fact, that's going to be her next outing, full stop. Um, And one of the upcoming TV shows, uh, Loki, which is again going to delve into the point on alternate timelines and kind of time disruptions and time variations. Um, We are, it's very, very likely, um, and I'm actually going to be very shocked, to be honest, with the breadcrumbs that Marvel's left behind, if we don't go down the route of Wanda reuniting with the kids. Yeah, it really seems like that. that is what they're setting up from everything you've said. The other thing I want, you've mentioned alternate realities mm-hmm. there. Obviously, your area of research is utopia. Yeah. I was wondering if you had some sort of utopian readings of WandaVision, for lack of a better way to ask. Um, I do. And um, for anyone who's a WandaVision fan, I would also recommend reading the House of M graphic novel, which is where a lot of these ideas of Wanda kind of creating different realities comes from. Um, the background to it is quite different. So, um, you know, don't, don't go in expecting the exact same story, um, but it kind of explores similar ideas. So I, I, I do study utopias and one of the big questions that we get in, in utopian studies is, is a question of choice and agency. Do you get to create this perfect world on behalf of other people? As someone who's also a community organizer, 
my firm belief is that the way towards building a better society is empowering communities and allowing people to come together and build their ideal utopias from the ground up. And what we see in one division is kind of the dangers of the other side of that, which someone going, I have all the resources, I have all the powers, let me just make everyone happy. But everyone isn't happy. <laughs> uh, and I think... No, not at all. Not, and, and it's, it, you know, extremely traumatizing experience. And, and Wanda, you know, when she's confronted by the Westview residents, she says things like, you know, she, she tries to justify it. She goes, but you were safe. Aren't you all safe? You were happy. And I made sure that your, your kids were safe. So she is kind of representing that almost harmful benevolence that some folks have and like, oh, I've got all the, I've got the access to resources. Let me just give people what I think they want. She wasn't even that altruistic. She was very aware that she was doing it for selfish reasons. But it raises that interesting kind of moral question of if you can change something, should you, even if it means you're imposing that change onto other people? Um, my firm belief to that answer is, is it's a categorical no, because change needs to be a communal change. People who are being affected by change need to, need to be the ones who, who have a say in it. I mean, I'm, I am so thrilled that at the end of it, they didn't just go into a, oh, it's fine. She's a superhero. She's allowed to do things like this. Um, there was that, that very, that tense moment where she's, where she's finally leaving Westview, where everyone's staring at her. Um, and in fact, um, Monica Rambeau kind of goes, you know, I, I empathize with you in my moment of grief. If I had what you had, I'd bring my mother back. And these people don't know what you've just given up. And Wanda just goes, I don't think it matters. And I think that was a really good point. And that's a really powerful moment, her realizing that for herself as well. Yes. It's to what extent, and that's actually a really good point about um, kind of wrongdoers in general. I think we definitely, both in television and real, in real life, we really want to know the character arc. What drove that person to commit an atrocity? What, what happened in their life mm-hmm. that meant that they've done harm to another human being? But actually, I don't think it matters. It's, <laughs> it matters. But actually, the harm you're doing to someone else still matters too. And and that's a really interesting point for the show to have played on. Yeah. I mean, the, the best comparison I can make, and, and this always comes up in questions of community care and community outreach and accountability is, you know, if if you push someone down the stairs and they break their arm, whether you push them out of malice or you happen to trip doesn't take away from the fact that their arm is still broken. <laughs> it It <laughs> might change the way you engage with them and kind of questions of forgiveness moving forward, but the direct impact of your actions is still the same. And I think that's what this is setting up. And I do think that that distinction is also important because we do see, for instance, Agatha Harkness, um, you know, for her, she was a very power hungry character for her. It wasn't that kind of nuanced shades of gray. She, she, she just wanted to be powerful um, and kind of the, the things that she did, um, aren't as excusable. And it's also, again, and, and the question there, of course, is, 
it's not, it's also not for us as viewers. And it's, you know, as was the, was paced with that conversation there. It wasn't for Monica to suggest what the appropriate response is. It's for the residents of Westview to decide for themselves whether they will ever forgive her or not. Do you think they ever would? <laughs> I don't know. And and this is one of those where, I mean, the, the cleanest option and one that is very, very likely, I will say, is Marvel just never visiting Westview again. Um, <laughs> so kind of leaving that up in the air. And, and that, you know, offers the possibility of multiple readings. Um, not that that's the reason they do it. But it, it would be interesting. I'd, I'd be curious if she does come back, um, even if it's kind of she comes back to check on 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 Agatha, which is, again, kind of her, the implication that, you know, oh, you, you'll you'll stay here. I know you will. Um, it'll be interesting to see if if she does interact with any of the other residents, if she does come back. Speaking about utopias more generally, mm-hmm. is there... Is there a reading of utopia as always being detrimental to some? Like, is a utopia for one inherently not a utopia for all? I think that's an interesting, again, that's kind of that grand philosophical question. I think if we kind of look at it from the actual impact of utopias, something that's important to remember is that utopias don't happen in a vacuum, right? So they'll they'll be... Um, whether it's kind of the positive, ideal utopia or the really negative, nightmarish dystopia, there's always a context behind how society got to that stage. And if we think about community empowerment as utopia, which, you know, would in, in the case of WandaVision be the Westview residents kind of getting their agency back. That came at the loss of Wanda losing her, her, her happiness. And I think it's, it isn't necessarily a clear cut, someone has to be upset, but I think, um, it would be naive to assume that there won't be some people who'll be negatively affected by society kind of changing its ways. And that isn't even necessarily to say that that negative impact is unjustified. So again, in Wanda's case, you know, yes, she lost this ideal bubble that she created for herself, but that ideal bubble was causing pain for a vast number of people. So morally, it was good for her to lose that bubble, even though personally she felt it, it wasn't. So, you know, if if we look at that from... Um, a kind of a, a more um, contemporary take on, say, social justice. When minorities get their rights, um, I mean, I, I'm by no means someone who believes that if a minority gets rights, someone who is like bigoted majority loses their rights. Rights don't function like a pie. But. Yeah, it's not a scarcity principle. No, but there is an inherent change in how society functions when minorities gain more recognition. Um, And to someone who is bigoted and happy with minorities being oppressed, they would think it's a really bad thing, even though it's not. So on that very subjective basis, yes, you could probably say that some people would get upset, even if 
kind of a community-based utopia was being achieved. Um, I guess from a moral standpoint, it's easier to argue that, you know, oh, everyone's happy or not everyone is happy, but those who deserve to be happy are finally happy kind of argument. Yeah, and that's a really interesting reading of it as well. Is like actually, are are people really losing out, um, or is it a perception of having lost something mm-hmm. as well? Which is a that's probably the real question to ask when you're talking about it in the in the minorities gaining the rights of others kind of utopia. I, I do also. This is there's not a utopian reading whatsoever, but I do also have to to take a moment to acknowledge. Um, that really powerful moment in the final episode when Monica um, deflected bullets. And in the age that we live in now, where law enforcement brutality has led to so many deaths of Black people, but especially in the US, the rates of gun violence that have led to the deaths of Black women Seeing a black woman repel bullets was a very powerful scene, even though it was, in the grand scheme of things, just a very small part of the action. Um, that was also quite meaningful. And I think that's where, again, context and identities of characters come into play, where it's not just that there's a person doing this, it's in the context of the world we live in, it's seeing a black woman do that. Has that always been there in the Marvel cinematic universe or is that like the kind of political context being played into more now? So the Marvel cinematic universe has always grappled with politics, um, even going as far back as the first Iron Man, where he, um, you know, he questions the ethics of what it means to become a billionaire by being an arms trader. Um, And we see for instance, in Captain America Winter Soldier, the, the question of the surveillance state, uh, Captain America Civil War, the question of kind of regulating bodies for the sake of the greater good. There are There is a lot of really powerful political context in Marvel films. And, and a lot of that is also down to the Marvel comics being quite politically active and politically savvy. Um, I think what people sometimes forget about Marvel comics, because it's become such a massive industry now, is that when it started in in the um, when it started in the thirties, thirties uh, and forties, it was by a group of middle class Jewish men, which you know in 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 the in post depression era United States, in a world that was rife with anti semitism. And it still is, but particularly damaging type of anti-Semitism. I think people forget that that's where Marvel started. And I don't think it's any accident that the films have picked up on that. And they haven't always done them in the most nuanced ways. I mean, if we think back to Iron Man again, we saw the, the arms trader ethics question done in a really interesting way, but you still have really racist portrayals of Muslims. (laughs) Um, So they're not perfect, but I think Marvel's getting better and better with it. And particularly since the success of Black Panther, um, what we're seeing is a lot more of an engagement with what it means. 
And um, we're seeing a lot of that in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier right now as well, deals a lot with with racial politics and what it means to be a black superhero in America. Um, so it's it's refreshing that it's not been erased from the TV shows and the films, but it's also not surprising that they're there in the first place because the context has always been there. Maybe in the past it was kind of like maybe you'd have black actors in these films, but they, it was kind of like a colorblind casting. There wasn't always this, the socio-political context there. But now it seems with Black Panther, definitely, it's it's actually like a celebration of of those characters and of those actors who are portraying them as well. Like it, it really seems like a positive step. Yeah. And I think there is a difference between um, colorblind casting and color conscious casting, because I think... Um, so Monica Rambeau uh, in the comics is a black woman as well. Um, okay. But, you know, it's, this is, um, that, that story wouldn't have had that same impact if it was any other race. It would have probably had zero socio-political impact if it was a white woman doing it. In, in the context of anti-Asian and anti-East and Southeast Asian violence we're seeing now, it, it would have had a specific specific response to that maybe if it was a an east or southeast asian actress but having a black woman in that role is kind of key to selling that point um so i do think that there are some roles that do need to be specific um folks specific demographics it's just that it's extremely rare in in my opinion to find an argument for specifically casting a white person, but there are many, many instances where you would specifically want to cast, as with Monica Rambeau, black woman, taking that question of, of queer characters forward when Billy, if and when Billy and Tommy come back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it would be really interesting to see if they cast queer actors for queer characters um, and what that means. So that, that there are ways that Casting of specific demographics, I, I think, still has a certain um, role to play and a certain power. Oh, definitely. And I think the, I, the you can see the failings of colorblind casting quite easily sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like Bridgerton is the one that comes to mind. Like you've got this whole universe, um, which is clearly set in the past, and you've got a racial dynamic, which is really like positive. You've got a lot of mixed race um, people in Bridgerton in power. Um, and there's maybe just one throwaway line about how that happened. You're like, oh, and then the war came, and I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's like, oh, and then suddenly there's people like us in power, and it's really that quick. Um, and a lot of people were really critical of that. It's like, actually, you've got a really good opportunity here with so many different amazing actors of color. Why don't you explore a little bit further into how this like dynamic came about, how these people rose to power? Um, and so I think, yeah, it's there is a huge difference between colorblind and color conscious casting. Um, and I'd love to see, especially and also not just color as well. I'd love to see that progression um, with um, the children in one division as well as they grow up and to see if they were able to kind of take that nuance with them, their queer futures as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I suppose um, a, a criticism that that has been leveled already and this this hasn't been 
something that came up with WandaVision, because obviously by the time WandaVision came out, the characters have already become quite established um, and the actors have become quite synonymous with these roles. But when Wanda was first introduced in um, uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, there was a, um, a moment of controversy because in the comics she is she's Romani Mm. um and yes there was that question of complicated rights or like ownership of rights and you probably couldn't tell the exact same story of her origins but you know kind of superimposing the Romani struggle onto the East European struggle isn't exactly the same thing um, and that isn't to say that, you know, obviously, again, there are, there are Romani communities in East Europe. So first of all, they could have just done that anyway. But it's, um, so that's a, a criticism that was leveled. Um, okay. They've just taken that out of the story. Yeah. And they do, you know, in one division, they had, maybe that could have been a chance to rectify that, where they do show her remembering her home life. Um, and it could have been something as subtle as, referencing her parents using romantic terms of endearment. I mean, who knows? Maybe the writers or the showrunners or whoever's making these decisions are, are always, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of like how many, how many issues can we put into this? This is also show true. That, yeah. that people will understand about. Um, and we had a really interesting um, episode, what the previous episode about Sister Sister um, and Misha Fraser Carroll, the journalist who I spoke to about that, she said, actually, there was a really big opportunity in Sister Sister to explore the class divide between the two twins. But you're already, but that it might seem that they were already doing race by having an all black cast. So I guess I, maybe at WandaVision, it's like, does that storyline, the Romani storyline, fall by the wayside because you've got grief, because you've got, um, you know, you've kind of got womanhood in there as well. You've got Mm -hmm. um, the trauma of her life already. I wonder if those kind of decisions get made. Sure. And, um, you know, there's, there, there is the practical point again with, with Scarlet, which having gone through so many iterations that perhaps it was just, they kind of just went, well, it's already a really messy background anyway. Let's just stick to what we currently already have. Um, And I guess this is, you know, where we, we get back to the question of, of um, needing more stories to do this. So kind of one of the reasons I loved the take on, on grief and the reason I love the take on kind of potential for, for queer childhood just being lovely and celebratory and unproblematic is it's also because we don't see that. And maybe if more shows and more portrayals authentically grappled with those questions, you then wouldn't kind of have to stop and go oh this show's doing this really well already why isn't it doing everything else great <laughs> yeah exactly and so these conversations do always circle back to that they're like actually if we just had more queer stories then we wouldn't be so critical of the ones that exist yeah. <laughs> because you wouldn't matter if there were a couple of like naff storylines yeah, because absolutely. we'd have we'd have really good ones as well <laughs> i think all of which is to say that it's it's encouraging that this is the state that we've reached now with uh, with conversations on 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 superhero storytelling because I do think with live action superheroes in particular because um, I will say for for fan list for for listeners 
Um, and for kind of newfound fans of the superhero genre, the car shootings were amazing because they were very, very nuanced. Um, but they were almost overlooked because cartoons are just for children. Um, it It's nice that the live action superhero portrayals are kind of keeping up that tradition of dealing with heavy stuff and and not being afraid to deal with it in authentic and meaningful ways rather than just going, oh, we should throw this in and then fix it by the end of the episode. Yeah, and I think that's what, um, speaking to you, I've actually come to realise. It's almost like I thought that maybe there were these superhero characters which have been sort of dumped these complex backstories and complex plots on top of, but you've kind of opened my eyes to the fact that actually, no, that was all, all in there. That was all kind of part of, um, you know, the, the birth through the comic books. And mm-hmm. I guess that's that's kind of opened my eyes a little bit um, to the superhero genre. I mean, I, I, I'm, I am obviously very biased in, in, in that I am an unashamed superhero fan, but I think there's some really exciting stuff that the genre does um, when it's done right. So, you know, th- th- that isn't to say that there haven't been... Um, really awful interpretations either um but i do i do think especially in an era where we're seeing shows like the boys which are very cynical about the power of superheroes um i i like to kind of remember why i fell in love with them in the first place um and one division was a really great reminder of being able to love superheroes for what they are in terms of just fun superpowered beings that that have these fights and that have these moments of really explosive, unbelievable action, but also the human side of that and kind of the, the interactions with just really relatable aspects of being who we are. And the joy as well. Yeah. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of uh, humor in WandaVision, which is, yeah, I imagine the same sort of side that one could fall in love with superheroes because of because of the silliness of it as well. That's that's very true. I think that that the joy of it is, and and, and also it's very um, there's almost a very unapologetic camp joy about superheroes. I find um, again, of course, different interpretations do that different ways, but there is that you know, the, there's something really interesting about fun. In, in superheroes um, where, you know, people who would probably not find themselves massively interested in things like clothes or might think that that's kind of just, oh, why are you into that? You, you'd probably still see some of them kind of get really excited to dress up as their favorite superhero, um, for example. And which is why the Halloween episode was so funny as well um, in, in one division, because the costumes that, um, that you saw Wanda and Vision and uh, the twins wear are callbacks to the very, very, very original costume designs of these characters. Um, That's amazing. And there's this absolutely hilarious point to be like, oh, these costumes are never comic book accurate. And then you see it on screen and you go, oh, that's why. Because if you did the actual 1940s Vision, that's what he'd look like. (laughs) 
And they that's they come down the stairs and they're like, oh, I look ridiculous in this or something, don't they? Yeah, they kind of and, call, and, and they, they do. Call that out. And they do. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I, that said, the, the sheer joy of, of cosplayers everywhere in lockdown going, yay, we can make really accurate costumes that won't cost much after watching that one division episode is also delightful. I love it. There's so many layers to all of it. Yeah. <laughs> the fandom is fantastic. I will definitely encourage anyone to to kind of to if if you've fallen in love with superheroes through one division or you, if you're just a casual superhero fan who happens to like the Marvel universe, find the fandoms. There's some really lovely spaces. That's amazing. And that's probably a really nice note to end on as well. Just a little bit of community finding at the end. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm just really grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. I think TV's great. And um, if, if anyone says that TV is not meaningful, you really shouldn't believe them. I've written about superheroes. Um, I've, I occasionally do. Um, very welcome to check out my social media profiles and you'll find stuff I've written about them there. My <laughs> my Twitter is uh, at Ibzor, which is I-B-Z-O-R. And I do, um, I think that's probably the best place to look because I kind of, I share my professional work there as well. And I kind of just share my general geekiness. Um, and at the moment, the pinned tweet is an article I wrote about the Young Avengers. Amazing. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Instagram at TV Change Me or on Twitter at TV Change Me Pod. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast apps and it will get downloaded straight to your telephone mobile every time there's a new episode, which would be amazing. This podcast was produced by me, Beth Watson, edited by myself. Uh, all music was produced by the beautiful musical mastermind that is Iora Music. You can find her on Spotify and Instagram by searching Iora. That's I-O-R-A. And uh, I think that's everything. Cheers, babes. Bye.